With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. When I first met Michelle Herrera Mulligan a few years ago, she was the editor-in-chief for Cosmo for Latinas, a job she almost convinced herself she couldn't get. We will get into that, along with how Michelle's career has taken her from the world of magazine publishing to the world of book publishing. She's now a senior editor at Atria Books, and she's giving us really useful insights into publishing and what it takes for writers to catch an editor's eye. Thank you, Michelle, for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. I was watching your TED Talk last night. I loved it. Oh, thank you. And you make a really powerful argument for dreaming wild. What does that mean to you? For me, to dream wild means thinking beyond the boundaries of your own experience. So for someone like me that grew up in a low-income household, a child of immigrants, it was impossible to imagine even leaving my town. My mother to, for her to imagine me not even being within 30 miles driving distance, you know, coming from a Latina family, that was unheard of. Going to college was unheard of. And then that didn't even take into account all the other nevers and shouldn'ts I heard once I got to New York. And I think that what can happen, especially when you're a member of the media, you're a storyteller, you're an artist of any kind, or any kind of creative person, is that pretty quickly you're going to start hearing why you don't fit or your ideas don't matter or why they're not quite right. Sometimes they'll use code language like, well, that doesn't seem like something that we could break out or that our audience doesn't really like that kind of story or doesn't really relate to this. There'll be so many, so many different versions of the same message, which is that you don't fit. 
So for me, dreaming wild, I like to think of it in an imaginative sense of let's just break this shit open. Let's just be like, okay, I don't belong here. I don't belong in your office. I don't belong at your publication. Well, what if I don't belong anywhere? It's almost a freedom, right? If I don't belong anywhere, then I actually belong everywhere. I can create my own wildest fantasy version of my life and anybody's life because there's literally no chance I can walk the straight and narrow path that you've laid out for me. So how about we just mess it all up and come up with something way more interesting? Did you get there before 40 or did it take you until after? Because I, there are all these studies that show that girls' confidence starts to wane in their teen years and that we don't get it back until after we're 40. Oh man, that's such a good question. I think I did actually, now that you mention it. I got, I, yeah, I was around 40 when a lot of big opportunities happened, but that was what I was talking about in my TED talk, which was, are you going to make a choice now? to act like you're a big baller and believe all the things you talk about, because I could say a lot and still like lay in the cut, right? Like I could say, oh, I'm just waiting for my own big opportunities. I'm making my own path. But what was I really doing? What was really at stake for me? And then the universe tested me by giving me this huge, massive opportunity. I had to ask myself, okay, well, here's the opportunity. Are you going to take it? Or are you just going to anticipate defeat? Are you going to anticipate the fact that it's not going to work? They'll never let you do what you want to do. It'll only last six months. Those are all things that I said to myself. And you're going to be humiliated publicly in a spectacular failure. So do you want to take that risk? Or are you really going to believe you're worth it? You grew up in Chicago, is that right? I did, yes. What put it in your mind that magazines were even a thing that one could do? At the time that I was growing up, um, magazines were huge. Uh, they don't really have maybe the same resonance they did at that time, but this was pre-social media, pre-everything. Like the means of communication that we had or that I had was my library card. All I had was the big stack of magazines that I could see every Saturday when my mom would drop me off at the library. I love a fellow nerd spending the Saturdays at the library. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I was such a nerd. I mean, even sometimes it would be Friday night and then Saturday, to be honest. I like, it was my whole life. You know, I had books and I had magazines and that was my connection to the outside world. So reading magazines like Sassy and Vogue and um, Cosmopolitan. It was kind of like how I learned how to be a grown-up woman who knows how to dress well and knows how to comport herself. It was a fantasy for me. I mean, I never went on a family vacation my entire childhood. I never went anywhere, but I loved travel and leisure because it was so beautiful. I was like, wow, people have houses like this. Like, I mean, I lived in like some really poor um, suburb of Chicago. So, I mean, there were some nice houses, but I realized that Barrington Rich isn't even real rich. Like I just realized like what real rich people's lives look like. And instead of being alienating to me, it was exciting. And I think I just thought I would like to be somewhere in that world. I didn't really think about what I would be doing in it or what responsibilities I had. I just thought it would be really great to be in the room. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. 
Swathers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swathers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swathers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Magazines publishing in general is just such a hard world to break into. No connections. How did you break through? I really didn't have anything except, and this is something I tell especially young Latinas all the time, all I had, and in some ways still to the sale I have, is who I am. You know, for however corny or like broke or confused and ill-informed I may be, which I usually am and like putting my foot in my mouth 70 times an hour, what I do have is my own story and my own point of view. At a very young age, I had this instinct to just tell the stories that were important to me. And I don't know where that came from. I think it came out of a fury that so many things were happening that I saw in my household, in my community, in my school. And I just had this rage that nobody was talking about it. I was like, how can it be happening? Am I in a dream or something? Like, why is this nowhere? Because at that time we were nowhere. There wasn't one single show with us. There was nothing. So I, I, having that, I just had to tell my story to whoever would listen. So, and then I went to college at University of Missouri, where people were calling me like a wetback and throwing things at me when I walked down the streets. When I was in that, I think that it was a matter of survival for me to tell my story. When I was a senior in college, I had become aware of a school um, for paramilitary in Latin America called the School of the Americas. So it was a place where they would literally train soldiers to murder and torture our own people. And I was supposed to graduate from college. I went, it was like the November before, and I knew that literally I could lose my diploma if I were to be arrested. Um, Martin Sheen had led a bunch of nuns actually to this 
site and I followed the call, you know, at the time I was really close with this nun, long story, but I went down there and I was arrested on federal property for just, uh, we were putting crosses to mark the deaths of all the people that had been killed in, in El Salvador. So I was just like, you know, I didn't, I was kind of bananas. I was like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to, I have to tell this story. And I was able to cover it in my local, in the Missourian, <laughs> the Columbia newspaper. Thankfully, they ended up dropping the charges, but it was a long road to that. But like all of this happened and I almost was unable to do my internship because um, I had an internship that I'd won in New York at Travel and Leisure and they were going to renege it because of all of this stuff. But regardless, that summer um, when I came to New York and I was doing the internship, instead of like going to Travel and Leisure with all these great ideas about the Greek islands, I told them about what had just happened. I went to Salvador and I sent them a bunch of dolls made by women there. And I was like, all these women want to thank you for all your advocacy. I mean, they just looked at me like I had three heads. But what ended up happening was this. I mean, that's it's a great metaphor for what happened. But all of that to say is that was the year that Latina magazine started. And I had sent them the articles that I wrote without any thought of whether they would read them or care. But Belén Arranda Alvarado, who's still a dear friend of mine, answered my old school letter talking about how, you know, this is a story I want to tell and this is how I feel about Latinas and I'm going to be in New York for this internship. And when I got there, I went to their office. It was like five people in this like extremely shitty room, but they were working, they were doing it. They were doing the initial issue at that time. And I arranged this whole group of cadre of interns to go visit their office. We didn't even fit in there. It's really giving yourself an importance that you don't even have. And taking the space when nobody literally could give a shit or wants to give it to you, it's saying, hey, this is really important. You should care about this. And the biggest shock to me, Alicia, the biggest um, mystery that I wish so many of us could unlock is that you'd be surprised how many people respond to that. I loved going through your LinkedIn profile, Michelle, because it really details how you made your way through this world from assistant editor at Latina to senior associate editor from Time Magazine to InStyle to Publishers Weekly to Glamour to House and Garden. The list goes on and on. Which of these jobs were you at when you got the email with the subject line, editor-in-chief, question mark, you, question mark? I was working at Us Weekly as a fact checker. It was hilarious. Like we would go, come in from Wednesdays through Fridays and we started our day at like 2 or 3 p.m. and like ended at 3 a.m. because it was like the week, you know, like we had to whatever, like Kim Kardashian's latest hookup. You're really just fact checking what they said, their sizes. You're just going back through old clips to make sure that, you know, whatever the official story is, is right. But I would stay up late at night and I can remember I have this friend uh, who is my boss and we were all in a line, like on top of each other, you know, with like, computers lined in a row and you didn't have a private moment, you know, like you just would be on the phone and everybody heard everybody's conversations. So I got this email and I was, I thought it was a joke. And my friend, Stephanie, I told her, I'm like, this is hilarious. They they're saying that they want me to interview for an editor-in-chief position at Cosmo. Can you believe it? I mean, of course, it's not the, the big Cosmo, but the like some special edition. And I, I, to me, it was, seemed so absurd. I thought she would laugh. And she was like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? You have to go for that. And I still to this day thank her for 
pushing me because she's like, what are you going to do? Fact check for the rest of your life? I don't know. I think I thought it was like this punk rock, like alternative lifestyle. I don't know what I thought it was. I thought it would just be like, oh, I'm just going to write some articles, man. And then I'll just do a few books. And I wanted to live outside of the context of the world, like them. I wanted to be me and they could be them. But then I realized like, there is no you and them. You have to become the them. The way I'm going to bring it back to today is that one of the editors there, Albert Lee, Albert was an editor. He was somebody that was writing and publishing small books about celebrities there. After like I was working there and then I got the Cosmo job, this is the beauty of, it's really special to me because he, everybody else around me believed it. Like I got the job and they started running my covers in the magazine. Like I didn't even ask them. And they wrote me letters saying, Michelle, we always knew you would do this. You're such a star. I was like, I mean, I didn't even know you guys knew my name. So you never know whatever position, no matter how lowly it is or what your title is, you don't know who's seeing your light at that time and who's noticing and who's listening to your conversations and who who sees something in you and you don't see it yourself. And the really beautiful like universe part of it is today. So when I first started this job as an editor, again, and this happens to me every freaking time I start a new job. I, I wish that I didn't, but I always have that moment of doubt. And then I got there and I felt really insecure. And I was like, I don't, these agents are going to answer me. And a lot of them didn't at first, but Albert had become an agent at UTA. And he was like, it's so fantastic. Now we're in the book game together. So I have all these things for you. And he just kind of, we took it from there. And now like, right, not right away, but within like maybe six months or so, I bought a book from him and it's Jenny Trejo's uh, memoir. And it just got announced today. So it's just really incredible how all of these relationships will come full circle, you know. What did making the leap into book publishing require of you? Making the leap into book publishing required me to become a very, very patient. It's a much slower <laughs> process than what I was accustomed to. And also to listen, to learn how to become a very astute listener. I, um, I had a lot to learn about this industry. I, I didn't know it, but I didn't come into it with the arrogance that I was going to revolutionize it or change it in any way. And I think that that was wise of me because in the past I'd say, I'm going to change the terms of the deal, man. I'm going to own this. And I think this time around I'd learn and said, okay, I'm going to learn what the boundaries are, what the playing field is. And then I'm going to see how I can make a lot of noise within that. That's what I did. You know, I interviewed a ton of people. I talked to a lot of legendary mentors like Don Davis, um, who is now the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit. But at the time, she was li literally one of the most um, groundbreaking editors of color that publishing has ever seen. And she happened to be working for Atria at that time. So just watching her actually was an education. And also watching how people conducted themselves with confidence and how they developed a gut for what might work and what might not. And also learning perseverance, because when you publish an author, you have to believe in them with every ounce of your being and not just forever. Like it's not an article that you publish and everybody's going to forget it tomorrow. 
It's like, you're going to be talking about that person now and over and over and over again. It's almost like you're married or your kids. Like, that's how I feel about my authors. I hope my editor feels that way about me. So that she makes does. me very happy. I like that ethos. Um, she does, by the way. I know your editor. I work with her now. <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. You're both at Atriot. She loves you. Yeah. <laughs> I love her too. We're due for a catch up. So I want to talk to you a little bit about book publishing because I think we have a lot of listeners who probably have it in their aspirations or their dreams to at some point write a book. Um, I learned so much selling my first book. It was incredibly humbling mostly because I, like everyone else, we just don't know that much about it until we try to do it. So I'm going to talk about nonfiction because that was the type of book that I was trying to sell and trying to write. So I wrote a, let's say, 40-page proposal, two to three-page summary, a proposed table of contents where I outlined my idea for each chapter, two to three sample chapters, a media plan, and then a bio, First of all, does that sort of sound like your standard proposal? And when those proposals reach you, what separates the ones that get a response from the ones that get discarded? Um, great questions all around. Oh, first, the, the first question about the uh, pr- proposal itself. Yeah, that's the standard layout. It's like what people want are chapter summaries give you a sense of the scope of the book. What is this individual going to cover? Um, and, and, and what is the breadth of how well they're going to take on that territory? Because it's a balance of having a really, um, standout, um, powerful idea that can, you can break out in the marketplace, um, but also the approach, right? The point of view. So you really want to see the voice there and, sometimes the voice comes through in those chapter summaries, believe it or not, sometimes even more so than in the sample chapters. I mean, each proposal is unique. There have been several proposals that I have accepted and completely changed the concept. Like I didn't that's want what happened with That's what happened with my book. So I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, no, and it, it happens more commonly than you would think. Like I'm talking about fundamentally change the concept, but what you're looking but at. That's also incredible. Like I remember when Stephanie, my editor, who you now work with, sat down in our meeting together and she said, I love the idea. Here's how I would change it. <laughs> and it it almost became so exciting to me because I did feel like I had been fighting my way through the proposal. Like I was circling around something, but I couldn't land it. And it took her and the way she saw it to help me get to a point where I was like, oh, this is a book I could actually write. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's an editor's job, but like to reverse engineer it for your listeners, the thing that that you absolutely have to have and prove is your voice. What's your unicorn point of view? That's the way I always put it. What can I get from you that I can't get anywhere else? That is, for me personally, I can only speak for myself, that is the most important thing. It, it does matter like what the point of view is. The second thing is, I think, just also giving a real sense of who you are, like why you specifically are the person that can break this idea out. It always comes down to what's new and powerful about your message, what makes your voice stand out, and what's fresh about what you're adding to the conversation. 
that is the most important piece to me. Because I have a media background, I always think about what people are going to talk about. Like, what are people going to talk about about your book? Why will people care? Not about you, but about your message. So that's what I think you should really focus on if you're doing a nonfiction book. Can you talk to me a little bit about the money and the way that you're assessing what a book is worth? Absolutely. So I thought it was just mystifying before I got here and it still mystifies me, but it's kind of like any other business. You're going to look at the market and you have to make a case. Like as an editor, you have to make a case for how many books this is going to sell, right? So regardless of whatever the proposal is or the book is, the first thing you do is you say, okay, um, I think this will sell 50,000 copies. I think it'll sell 100,000 copies. Like you have to actually come up with a number. Whether you make that number or not um, isn't really the issue. It's how you see it. Um, and, th- and then you have to, that's how you make the case for the level. Um, the number ends up coming up dramatically based on the demand. Like if there are several editors that want the book, that are compelled by the book, then, you know, you get in an auction and that's self-explanatory, right? Then the, then the number goes up. Um, but it's, it's a delicate dance between how new or groundbreaking is this versus how much of a market is there for it? Like, do I see trends going toward this type of book selling this amount? Because that's how you have to make the case to your bosses. This is why. So you're going to look at comparative titles. You're going to be looking at social media, you're going to bring a lot of stuff in to try to make the case for that. But um, that's what's happening on our end. So the more you can do on your end to show, you know, that's, I guess, where your marketing plan is, show what platform, because your platform doesn't have to be social media. You just have to show how this idea and this person has legs. Like it's the book is something that will be timely, but also timeless. There has to be something really classic also, because it's a book and it'll live forever. But all of those factors will lead into how much it ends up going for. Is there another piece of advice that you give to people when they are trying to sell a book, specifically if it's a Latina? Um, Honestly, my best piece of advice for anyone, um, Latina or other otherwise, but especially a person of color, is know your craft. Be really, really, really good. Because the one thing that trumps everything that I've said is spectacular writing. And you would be surprised how many people I've met over the course of my life were like, oh, I don't really read much, but I'm a writer. Or I just, you know, I know I may not be the best writer, but I have this great idea or whatever. And it's like, that's not going to get you anywhere. This is the writing and reading business. There are those writers who had no platform, no connections, nothing, but they were absolutely unforgettable storytellers. Like they just knew that craft and storytelling and whatever, whether it's a how-to book or it's fiction or it's, you know, business or whatever category you want to take on, it doesn't matter. There's all storytelling. If I want to stay up so late, my eyes bleed because I love this so much. That goes a really long way. Thank you, Michelle, for sitting in your bathroom and doing this with me. Thanks for inviting me. It's so fun. I love your show, and I feel so honored that you would include me. Oh, my God. This is wonderful. I'm so happy. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentico Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our senior producer. Our lead producer is Cedric Wilson. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor and ad ops lead. We love hearing from you when you email us at hola at latinatolatina.com, when you slide into our DMs on Instagram, when you tweet at us at Latina to Latina. Remember to subscribe, follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, I know I ask this all the time, but do leave a review. It is one of the fastest, easiest ways to help us grow. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.